from all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say no contract, you say no code. No contract, no If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host and fellow agitator is here with me, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, last weekend, Southern Labor is back. Kim Kelly talks to us about her new book. Adam talks about how labor history is not taught in Alabama and more on the program. Uh, If you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number. And as always, the line is open. The line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail anytime throughout the week. I know that we get a lot of people listening to us on the podcast, as a YouTube video. You can just leave us a voicemail anytime you want to contribute to the conversation. It's always there. Um, If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere. You can find any us anywhere, anything online, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, all at the Valley Labor Report. Uh, Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our new hat that I'm wearing, and you can see it if you're watching us online, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm, or become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Um, I'm really happy with the hat, too. It's really nice. I don't know. I'll get up closer to the, to the camera so you can see that. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I like it. It's a, it's a nice, nice trucker hat. Union labor. Union made. Union made in America, unlike Republican politicians and talk radio hosts who have all of their merch made in China, ours is union made in America. Who's more patriotic? Let's. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and hey, uh, look, before we get to our first segment, um, today is the National Association of Letter Carriers Stamp Out Hunger food drive. Every year, um, the letter carriers have a food drive. And so what they do is if you would like to 
donate to the food drive, leave a bag of non-perishable food items next to your mailbox today, and your letter carrier will handle the rest. They will collect all of the non-perishable food items and... um, and, and then they'll they'll give them to folks who need it. So uh, it's a pretty, pretty cool thing. Pretty cool thing that they do every year. They, they get like lots and lots of uh, lots and lots of stuff for uh, for people who need it. So if you are if you are so inclined and you've got some non-perishable food items uh, in your pantry, then go ahead and throw that next to your mailbox and your letter carrier will pick it up. Yeah, shout out to the letter carriers shout for that good work. Shout out to the letter carriers. Uh, so yeah, we've got a great show. We've got a great show today. Uh, really looking forward to it. Like I said, if you want to be part of the show, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We're going to get right to our first segment, though, uh, which is going to be Last Week in Southern Labor. That is a segment that we do. We try to do it every week. Last week, we weren't able to do it because uh, Jonah Furman uh, did not do his newsletter last week. So this is going to be actually the last two weeks in Southern Labor. It's a segment that we do uh, every week where we go over what happened in the labor movement in the South last week. We get the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, whogetsthebird.substack.com, where he compiles everything that happened in the labor movement in the whole United States. So if this is is a segment that is interesting to you, you can see what happened in the rest of the country by going to his newsletter, whogetsthebird.substack.com. It's really cool. He pulls like all the NLRB filings, the election filings, wins and losses, uh, news articles about strikes and bargaining updates stuff like that um really really cool very exhaustive list about what is happening every week in the labor movement awesome awesome stuff so let's get right into it in new organizing in the last two weeks 461 starbucks workers at 18 stores filed for union elections with workers united including in atlanta georgia el paso texas winter park florida glen allen virginia and smyrna and alcoa tennessee Notably, with the Starbucks Workers United campaign, this is not happening in the South, but it is worth mentioning, 91 Starbucks workers at three stores in Madison, Fitchburg, and Monona, Wisconsin, are apparently unionizing with UFCW, Local 1473, which is clearly a violation of even the most basic understanding of union jurisdiction, um... But the and, and and I mean, Workers United is not publicly beefing with them about this. There have been some baristas um, with Workers United that have said, "This is cr- why are you doing this, UFCW? Why would you not send the leads to us?" Um, and, uh, and but the UFCW International is standing behind this local. It's not like this local is just going out on a limb and organizing these folks by themselves. Um, so very strange behavior from the UFCW and very strange for them, for their international to stand behind it. Uh, it's very weird. Um, and why is that? Why is it not good that just, you know, anybody organizing Starbucks uh, stores anywhere is good? Uh, because you segment their bargaining power. Like you want... It, as much as possible, especially while we're in the early stages of this campaign, uh, everybody going with Workers United. Why? Because they'll have more bargaining power. If you get Starbucks bargaining with 13 different unions, they can pit people against each other much more easily. It's just, it's very frustrating, very frustrating behavior. Um, 
360 players for the United States Football League are organizing with the Steelworkers Local 37 in Birmingham, Alabama. That's that's interesting. Looking forward to seeing how that goes. 115 aircraft mechanics for Vertex Aerospace in Cherry Point, North Carolina are organizing with the machinists. 20 firefighters who work for Aerostar Airport Holding in Carolina, Puerto Rico are unionizing with the Hermandad de Empleadas de Oficina. 17 workers for Badger Daylighting in Orange City, Florida are joining the Operating Engineers Local 673, which is the third Badger filing by uh, an Operating Engineers Local since March, which is very cool. Uh, In election wins and losses, with the caveat that the NLRB reporting lags behind reality considerably over the past two weeks across 23 ballot counts at Starbucks stores across the country, Starbucks Workers United won 20 outright, with 563 workers voting a combined 266 yes to 68 no. That's 80% in favor of the union. There are now officially newly unionized shops across the U.S., including in Leesburg, Virginia, and Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, Three in Phoenix, Eugene, and Raleigh, North Carolina, were unsuccessful on initial count, but at least some of these have a potentially determinative number of ballots challenged by the company. So that could end up in a in a uh, in a win for the union. Uh, 45 workers at Griffles Blood Bank in Gainesville, Florida, voted 19 to 8 to join UFCW Local 1625. Very cool. In strikes and bargaining, the 500 Chevron workers on strike with Steelworkers Local 5 in Richmond, California. Ah, oh, I thought that was Richmond, Virginia when I was when I was bummer but anyway well, a lot of cool stuff it, happens in richmond california yeah. uh they've had a very um, impressive progressive movement there mm-hmm. uh building power at the local level so yeah uh but, i do know that strike has has really you know galvanized the community yeah. well since i said it they're seeking to reopen negotiations with the company after weeks of no contact meanwhile the refinery workers are getting support from environmentalists who took to the bay to extend the picket line um It'd be very cool if we saw some Republican activists out there, um, but they don't actually care about energy workers. They care about energy bosses. In D.C., drivers with ATU Local 689 for the D.C. Circulator, the bus lines run by private contractor RATP Dev, struck for three days and get this, one an 18.5% to a 25% pay increase. Part of what provoked the strike was the big pay differential between circulator drivers and their WMATA uh, counterparts, So, uh, which is a clear violation of the union principle of equal pay for equal work. 3,000 workers for Arconics across four steelworkers locals in uh, Iowa, Indiana, and Tennessee and New York are taking strike authorization votes on Thursday. So that would have happened uh, a couple days ago, so we'll see how that turned out. Uh, not satisfied with the brutal months-long strike, a Kellogg's vice president compared BCTGM strikers of 2021 to terrorists, <laughs> and was, he was promptly fired. Also, that actually is great, unironically. Yeah, that that is great that he was fired. Um, it was kind of surprising, thanks to reporting from the Intercept. 
Uh, You'll remember that um, Kellogg, BCTGM workers at Kellogg's struck, uh, including in, I believe it was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There was a a Tennessee location of that strike. It was nationwide. Elsewhere uh, in Unite Here News, Local 23 is still pushing for action from the U.S. Senate for its 175 dining workers in D.C., setting a deadline of May 18th for some kind of movement with a vague threat of escalation. 700 machinists at United Launch Alliance in California, Alabama, and Florida have a new contract averting a potential strike. We talked about that last week. AFGE is in a fight with the Office of Personnel Management over telework because the office never implemented digital filing systems long advocated by the union and could be required under the Paperwork Reduction Act. Workers are being unnecessarily forced back to in-person work in D.C. In political fights, the Congressional Workers Union enjoyed a big breakthrough with the chamber taking up the bill to legalize their right to unionize, while House Speaker Pelosi raised the salary floor to a still meager $45,000 a year. Some House Democrats are calling for more funding for the NLRB as well. The UA the UAW and several states filed federal lawsuits against USPS for moving the production of its new electric fleet from a union plant in Wisconsin to a non-union facility in South Carolina. And finally, AFGE Council 238, which is the EPA's biggest union, is calling on the president to declare a climate emergency. And so that's what happened last week in Southern Labor. We're going to take a really quick break, but don't go anywhere. We've got some great stuff on the other side. You are listening to the Valley Labor Report. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs 
Have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. I'm all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth, all wealth should go to labor, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We have got a great interview interview for you right now. Um, we spoke to Kim Kelly yesterday. She is the author of Fight Like Hell. She is a columnist for Team Teen Vogue. She is a former labor reporter for Vice. Uh, she is a former heavy metal reporter for Metal Sucks. She is uh, now mostly a freelance labor reporter, uh, and she has been on the Warrior Matt Cole strike like nobody else in the national media. She just came out with a book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, and we talked to her about that book yesterday. So, Adam, let's go ahead and play that interview for the good folks. Our next guest is friend of the show, Kim Kelly. This is the first time, I think this is the first time that we actually have you on the radio. We've done some extra stuff, like online stuff, but I think this is the first time we've actually had you on the radio with us. Oh, that's so funny. It feels like we've talked, well, we've talked so much over the past yeah. year, year and a half, but sort I of assumed. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I don't think so. I think this is the first time. So, so uh, welcome everybody to Kim Kelly. Um, thanks, <laughs> thanks for coming to the show, Kim. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know I do anything for you boys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, is not um, – it's not about labor, and it's not even specifically about the book. It's about your your writing style, because, and, and I wanted to maybe know a little bit about like how you came into to like if there was any anything in your education or, or any particular like way that you try to write. Because I um you know I read a lot of the stuff that you put out, 
and most of it now is labor stuff. And we can talk about we can talk about what it used to be in a little bit. But um, and so I've always enjoyed it. But the other day I read something that you wrote about like a tea convention and I don't know why I clicked on it but I read it I don't like tea I'm not a tea guy um but but I read it and I was like really engrossed and I think that was the first time that I actually realized that you were a, uh, that how good of a writer you are because I enjoyed reading this article about a thing that I could not care less about so how did you <laughs> like how did you come to write the way that you do like is there kind of a um, you know, did you use, have you always just been a really good writer or like what's, you know, how, how did you develop your style? That's really interesting. No one's asked me that before. And I think, I think there's a few things that factor into the way I write. I mean, I learned to read when I was really young and I was really precocious, pretentious little kid. So I read really widely when I was young and I built up a pretty strong vocabulary and I always, you know, I, I didn't, Actually, actually, maybe one reason that I write the way I do is I've never really taken any journalism classes or that many writing classes. I've never mm. really had anyone tell me how I'm supposed to do it. Mm. And so I just write the way that things sound in my head and sound good to me. And I think that is maybe a little bit more accessible than more structured writing styles. Mm. And also, since I, uh, I guess my most significant writing experience for most of my life has been writing about a subject that is not necessarily everyone's cup of tea, writing about heavy metal for yeah most of my career. And I wrote about heavy metal and like really obscure stuff and kind of complicated concepts in that very specific world for places like Brooklyn Vegan and NPR and Stereogum, like mainstream publications. And I had to learn how to take my enthusiasm for something and my depth of knowledge about something a little bit obscure and find a way to pull people in who didn't know what I was talking about, mm -hmm. like how to grab people and how to show them like, this is something that you could totally be into too. I'm not going to hit you with a bunch of SAT words or any gatekeepery, you know, BS. I'm going to try to be clear and try to just show people why I care so much, why I think it's cool. And that's the sort of thing that I bring to my labor writing too, because it's not exactly, you know, Swedish death metal or Indonesian grindcore, but <laughs> not everyone knows a ton about labor history or labor's present unless they're actively involved, actively interested. So, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of acronyms, a lot of labor law things, a lot of shorthand mm -hmm. that people uh, who are writing for a specifically labor audience might just assume everyone knows what we're talking about when we complain about Taft-Hartley or talk about the NLRB, right. but not everyone knows that stuff and that's fine. So taking a little bit of extra time to explain things a little more clearly and break things down and just assume that whoever's reading might not know all the same stuff I do, but mm -hmm. has every reason to be interested. And yeah, I think I just get excited about the things I like. I really like the stuff <laughs> I write about. And hopefully that comes through. I think I think it does because I you know I, like when I read the article about the tea convention I was like oh this is very interesting maybe I'll go to a tea convention <laughs> even though I do not enjoy tea <laughs> not even a and little in bit. In fairness, I spent most of that convention getting wasted because it was mixed with a bar convention. <laughs> so maybe my my willingness to be um, a little human and a little bit of a dirtbag maybe mm -hmm. that comes through too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not um, an unapproachable kind of writer. I'd say that I'm not an right. academic and right. I'm not a, a stuffed shirt by any stretch of the imagination. Right. I, well, I, I think that's uh, that's those are the kind of, you know, people that that I'm drawn to as far as their, you know, their media output and, and their writing and their, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, so the 
stuff that you did before, you you kind of alluded to it. You were a heavy metal writer. Um, talk to us ab- about that being a heavy metal writer. Um, <laughs> and, very specific and, you know, vocation. <laughs> it's a very specific vocation. And when and when we say heavy metal, we don't mean even the kind of popular scene metal right that that was uh, we're not talking about metallica though i did yeah. interview lars ulrich he or, was or, or even or, or even metallica or, or or um you know like asking alexandria or under oath or, oh, or, no. or, or some of those <laughs> folks like those are you know those are the kind of bands that i was i was briefly really into uh when i was in middle school and high school um you know and I, I asked you about some of them and you were like i have no idea who these people are and so i looked up some of the bands that you listened to and it was like totally indecipherable and you know, <laughs> so totally oh, yeah. totally different genre caveman noise <laughs> when, when we're talking about heavy metal so how did you get how did you get into that kind of writing about this indecipherable genre of music <laughs> It's yeah, you can you can catch a word here or there if you know what you're looking for. But <laughs> yeah, it's a very um not a very accessible type of music, whether it's and it's you know, multifaceted, whether it's black metal or death metal or grindcore or industrial, like there's a lot of different ways to, you know, to be part of the extreme metal category. But I get into it when I was pretty young because I was, you know, I grew up I think I might be a year or two older than you, but I'm 34 now. So when I was growing up, like 13, 14, that's when new metal was huge. And mm-hmm. I got into those kind of bands like Slipknot, Paramount, 5000, all that stuff. But I was always drawn to the more aggressive parts of it. So it was kind of an easy jump from Slipknot to Cannibal Corpse and Morbid Angel and, you know, these really, you know, aggressive death metal bands. And something in it just spoke to me. And I'd always wanted to be a writer. I wasn't sure what kind, but I happened to be, and this is like a total lucky coincidence. I happened to be writing for my county newspaper uh, when I was 15 like just writing about like politics and sports and stuff for their teen section. And that was right the same time that I got into death metal, more extreme metal. And they let me do record reviews and do band interviews. So I was like writing about pig destroyer and behemoth for like the Burlington County times. And I just started writing for more zines and web zines like they were then and like little local zines and got an internship at metal maniacs. Like I just, kind of decided I'm going to write about heavy metal. That's the thing I'm going to do. And I did it for a really long time. And I was pretty M slash was slash M pretty good at it. I got, um, I was probably the best known woman writing about metal in the U S for a pretty long time. And um, it was an interesting world to live within because I was not only writing about metal, I was throwing shows. I was touring with bands. I worked at a record label. I did promo. I kind of did a little bit of everything. And um that was my my real world education. I went to college, but I didn't uh, I didn't put that much effort in. <laughs> so being out in the world and meeting all these different kinds of people, that really like kind of opened my my mind a little bit. Because I'm from a really rural, isolated area. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time I was 27 or something, I started working at Vice in 2014 and 2015. We unionized. 2016, we got our first contract. Like. I ended up in the right place at the right time and got super involved in the union effort. That's when I got to meet my first labor organizers. That's when I learned more about labor law. Like that was this huge introduction to this world that I'd known about a tiny bit because my family's union, but they're not, you know, my dad's part of the union, my granddad's part of the union, because that's what you do. That's the kind of jobs they had, you know, construction, steel workers. But uh, I hadn't thought about it that much until I got a chance to join one. And then 
that really shifted everything I wanted to write about. Like mm. I'd written about heavy metal for like 20 years. And then I was like, okay, I think I want to make a switch and see if I can pull this off. And well, here we are. So I guess it worked out. Okay. I've, I've read some, um, memoir wouldn't be the right word, but, but looking back on, you know, the time that you spent doing heavy metal stuff and, and some of the things that you've talked about, um, doing that kind of work, there was, there was a certain amount of exploitation and sexual harassment that came with being a woman reporting on heavy metal. Did any of those experiences with abuse and exploitation make you more likely to like make you make you more likely to unionize or make you feel like tender ready to catch fire when you had the opportunity or do you, do you think it was it was just a little bit of every like how did how did those the negative experiences that you had writing for um re, you know reporting on heavy metal bands how did that um how did that affect you as you unionized at vice and and as you began your transition to labor reporting. Mm, that's interesting. So it definitely had a big impact. So I started going, writing about metal and going to metal shows when I was still a kid, like 15, mm-hmm. 16. And that was, <laughs> that was brutal. Cause I was usually one of the only young women or girls in the area. A lot of older guys took a lot of liberties and it, I definitely went through some pretty gnarly situations and learned a lot of lessons about who you can trust and where you're safe and where you're not safe. And I also, as I got a little older and got a little bit more interested in the world outside the woods, the world outside, like my little very narrow white girl experience, I got more political and I educated Mm. myself about politics. And those earlier, well, they never really went away, but especially those earlier experiences with sexual harassment and abuse and assault, like that made me into a feminist. And that Mm. made me someone who cared a lot about like gender equality in the scene. And then as I, I read more and met more kinds of people, that, you know, that worldview expanded and I started being interested in, you know, calling out and challenging other types of oppression and bigotry in the scene. And that came through in my work. And really by the time that we got involved in uh, doing union organizing advice, I was like, <laughs> I was pretty well known slash hated slash loved very extreme reactions to my work all the time because I was really, really political in a way that caused a lot of consternation and discomfort within a scene that was more than happy to not look at its its ugly parts or mm. confront its problems with every kind of bigotry you can think of. Right. And, I mean, the, uh, the, the heavy black metal, death metal scene is is very politically complicated like you'll have anywhere oh from <laughs> you know it, I, I mean it, this is you know and this is a scene that i'm not terribly familiar with but my understanding is that you know it, it's a scene where you've got like anywhere from genuine actual you know swastika tattoo neo-nazis to like violent revolutionary communists all kind of in broad you know listening to the same music and at the same shows right yeah, it's well, usually the like the the further ends of the spectrum would not end up in the same room because that could get dicey. Mm-hmm. But the thing about writing about metal and being a part of that world is like, yes, there's definitely different political extremes, but most people are in the middle. And it's in that same way that metal is kind of a microcosm for the rest of the world, the rest of our society. Most people are just kind of in the middle, trying to hang on to the parts they enjoy, trying to tune out the stuff they don't like. 
And the people in the middle will either ignore you or get upset when you tell Mm -hmm. them like, yes, I understand you like that band, but they're really anti-Semitic or like they really hurt this woman. Like, I'm sorry that something you enjoy is complicated and I'm sorry to be the person to tell you, but this is something that's important for you to know. Like when you make your decisions about who you're going to support, who you're going to go see. I mean, that's, I mean, you, you could say that about any community in this country, right? Like any social group. Right. And um, I guess just being having that political viewpoint and then being offered an opportunity to do something material, like by unionizing, by actually improving our workplace, by actually improving the experiences of like, the most marginalized workers, like that was huge. Like that fit perfectly into the politic I was developing and into like the other activism work I was doing in New York at the time. Like it all just made sense. And I was like, well, of course this like loud mouth lefty heaven metal girl is in a union now. Like, I guess that, I guess that tracks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, well, that's what I still am. Like I've kind of <laughs> been the same for a really long time. I just turned my laser focus to a different, struggle mm-hmm. even though like i'm still covered in tattoos and you know listen to heavy metal all the time i'm still still a metalhead it's just you know i i buy different large gilded shirts with different logos on them now that i <laughs> collect union merch instead of metal merch right right yeah well so the um you know the getting into labor reporting from that from that uh, uh, from that kind of scene, you know, I think that probably gives you a pretty pretty unique tr- uh, pretty unique trail to where you are. Did that have any anything to like? Was was your trajectory? Did that make you? Did that play into you wanting to write the book? Like, is your trajectory um, part of why you wanted to write Fight Like Hell? Yeah, because I mean, I feel like um, almost, if not every, every writer wants to write a book. And I always thought I would, but I always assumed my first book would be about metal. And then things shifted and it turned out that that was not the case. But I guess I've had such a mm, unorthodox sort of career that I've kind of pieced together, like with grit and good luck and the help of some really good friends that I've never really had stability and it kind of felt like if I write a book and I do a good job and it reaches people, then maybe that will kind of put me in a little bit more of a stable place. Like I can be an author. I can do bigger things than, you know, hustling, writing articles for a couple hundred bucks a pop. And I mean, I still do that. And I'm probably still going to do that forever. But it seemed like it might give me a little bit of the credibility, I guess, that even if that I have still struggled with feeling like I have. I still have like that imposter syndrome, right? Because I'm not an academic. I'm not a historian. I'm not trained. I'm self-taught. I guess my biggest strengths are my passion for this stuff and my ability to talk and emphasize and listen to workers and listen to their struggles and try to communicate that in in an approachable way. Like I'm I'm still kind of amazed that I get to do this stuff. And uh, I mean, I've been unemployed since 2019. Like I'm... I, I'm from a very rural working class family. Like I'm doing all this by the skin of my teeth. So when I got the opportunity to write a book, I thought, okay, maybe this will be something that gives me, I can take a breath mm-hmm. and then I can kind of build on that. And we'll see. It's only been out for a little bit, but just the fact that I was able to do this, like to write a book and like mm-hmm. it got published and people are reading it. That is like the pinnacle of a life dream. And now I just have to figure out what I'm going to do now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, so what, you know, the book is is titled Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Um, 
you know, and so that that was part of the, you know, the the stability and the credibility was part of the reason for like writing a book. But what was the motivation for writing this book? This is the book that I wanted to read. And that sounds kind of selfish, right? But as someone who, like you guys, has read a ton of books about labor history and about labor organizing, just labor, labor, labor. I've got a giant bookshelf behind me. I've read a lot of books and some of them have been really incredible and some of them have left things to be desired and they're all important in their own way, but I've never read a book that really pulls together all these different pieces and different stories and characters in a really intersectional way. Most books, especially those written by academics who have very specific fields of study, they'll focus on one group of workers, one era, one place. And thank God for them, because without that work, I wouldn't have been able to research this book. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to write something that shows that not only has every type of person been involved in the labor movement, like no matter where they come from, what their identity is, you know, what, what their job is, that they've done really incredible things and they haven't done it alone. Like every movement for social justice or progress in this country ha does go back to the labor movement. People in the labor movement have been part of all those struggles too, whether we're talking about the civil rights movement or the disability rights movement or the feminist movement, the immigration rights movement, without labor, without workers, without labor activists, those movements wouldn't have been as strong. And I wanted to show how connected everything really is, I guess, in an effort to show people that you can care about more than one thing. Mm -hmm. And we're all, everything intersects in ways that make us really strong and give other people the opportunity to try and weaken us and break us apart. But if we stand together, that does mean that we, our chances of winning are a lot greater. Right, right. Absolutely. I think that segues perfectly with something that I wanted to bring up, which is, you know, in popular culture, it seems like when you think of unions, you think of organized labor, we're supposed to picture a big, burly white guy in a hard hat. Like that seems to be the, you know, the popular consciousness around unions. Now, you know, of course, we know that's not representative of the labor movement now or in the past uh, or just the working class more broadly. And I think your book does an excellent job really tackling that misconception. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that is one of the essential, you know, the essential accomplishments of your book. That was really one of my motivating factors in doing this, right? Because even growing up, my idea of what a union was and who it was for was for guys like my dad early white guys and hard hats. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got to Vice and realized, oh, they do make unions for people like me? Wow, I had no idea. That was a huge shift. And I think a lot of people are kind of realizing this, especially now we have this uh, you know, greater public attention on organizing workers in different kinds of workplaces like Starbucks and Amazon are getting a ton of interest. Like any, any worker can join a union or form their own union. Like we're, we're all allowed, we all count. And this avatar of the, you know, the burly white guy has kind of been used to exclude a lot of people and to discriminate against a lot of people. And that has only harmed the movement and harmed workers. And honestly, if you want to get into demographics and facts and figures and all that, the most typical type of union member in this country is a black woman who works in healthcare or in the service industry. Mm. Like the most, I think the most heavily unionized demographic in this country is black women. So why would the idea of a union member not be a black woman? 
right. there's probably a lot of reasons why it has been more convenient to push other ideas of who a union is for. But in this book, I wanted to make it very clear that, yes, the white guys in hard hats, they're there. We love them. Shout out mm-hmm. to the boys. But so many other types of people have done such important work and have been here since the beginning. That's the thing. Right. It's not a new thing that, you know, black and brown workers and you know, queer and trans workers and like, you know, different types of workers that don't work in traditional automotive industries or manufacturing industries. Like that's not new. Mm-hmm. We've always been here. And I wanted to make that very clear because I think that making that crystal clear is a way that we can show those people that this is their movement too. And mm-hmm. that they are like, they've always been part of it. We've always been part of it. The narrative might've left us out, but that doesn't erase the accomplishments of what we've done. Right. Right. And I, I think that, for me, when I was when I was reading the book, something that came that that just kind of came out from the pages was that the the working class constantly has to reassert itself as such, like as a class against internal and external forces that are seeking to divide it, um, you know, along the lines of gender, race, sexuality, mm. migratory status, you know, things like that. And where workers divided, they lose more easily. Um, and where they're not divided along these lines and where we incorporate and encourage people that are part of these marginalized groups that have always been part of the labor movement, even if they've been relegated to the sidelines. When we bring them in, um, it's better for it's better for them, obviously, but it's also better for everybody else. What do you feel like, whether in, in your book or not? But what do you feel like is the best kind of um, Warning, teachable moments in in labor history where working folks were divided, and, and where it's it pr- they pretty obviously could have done better. They could have they could have won or come closer to winning had they not allowed themselves to be divided. I mean, there are so many ugly moments in labor history where that those divisions have been made very clear, and that discrimination has just been like allowed to run rampant. Like I always think about how the American Federation of Labor, the predecessor to today's AFL-CIO, early labor organization, they were all in on this really xenophobic racist legislation like the Chinese Exclusion Act. That was back in the 1880s. And instead of seeing like a new wave of workers coming to this country, trying to get involved in the workforce as a new workforce to be organized, they saw people as coming to take their jobs, take their members' jobs. And that's a really ugly sentiment that we've seen repeated throughout the centuries, whether it was black workers, whether it was immigrant Irish and Italian workers, now with Latino immigrants, like there's always this idea that some people are coming to take something that we have instead. And, you know, some labor leaders and parts of the movement have fallen victim to that and perpetuated that. But not everyone has bought into that. Right. And the unions who have rejected that racist, xenophobic rhetoric, like I think they're so much stronger for it, so much more effective for it. Like one of my favorite examples, it's a little bit further back. One of my favorite examples of just how powerful it is when workers from different backgrounds and different experiences come together uh, as an 18 no not 18 1946 in hawaii uh, the great sugar strike mm. i talk about it all the time so i think it's really cool <laughs> like, mm-hmm. i think things are cool um yeah jersey dirtbag but yeah i think it's really cool the way that the workers were able to get around all these obstacles that the bosses put in their way 
uh, some context at that point in the Hawaiian Islands, there is there's these massive sugarcane plantations that made a ton of money for white guys who lived on the mainland while working you know, the laborers to death. And they're predominantly worked by native Hawaiian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Filipino, Puerto Rican, uh, workers from kind of all over the place, predominantly Asia. And the bosses kept all these workers in different segregated camps and they paid them differently and they treated different workers, like workers from different uh, nationalities differently. And they said very explicitly, like in their letters, we want to make sure that they don't get together and organize because mm -hmm. that's, that's the last thing we want. And then when it came time to strike, their union, the ILWU, International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, who have a very cool, very radical history of their own, they realized like, okay, we need to bring everyone together. We need to make everyone see this as their cause. Because previously, different nationalities had been pitted against one another as strike breakers, like whether it was mm -hmm. Filipino workers breaking a Japanese worker strike or you know, just other permutations of that. But going into this, those organizers were like, okay, we're going to get translators from every language and every community, make sure everyone knows what's happening. Everyone feels heard. We're going to set up strike kitchens and have workers cook for one another and build a community that way. We're going to make it very clear that everyone is equal in this union. Everyone is equal in this strike and we're all fighting together. And that strategy won. And they, mm -hmm. they, they got her like a 20 year high raise. Like they did, like they conquered the sugar barons. And I think there's such an important lesson there. Like it's, it seems so simple, but honestly, just making sure that everyone can understand what's happening. Everyone knows, everyone feels heard and everyone feels respected. That's how you win. Like shutting people out or dismissing them because they have a different experience or speak a different language. That's a recipe for failure. Like we've seen it before and hopefully we won't see it again, but we probably will. Hmm. <laughs> but that's the lesson, right? right? Be cool. Like, yeah. treat everyone equally. <laughs> I when I read that, I was like, "Oh, this is so cool!" Because I've I've read, you know, you you mentioned that you uh, you've obviously read more than I have, but I, I've been able to read a few books now about labor history and 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 when I was reading that story, I was able to remember some testimony from solidarity stories which was a book about oh, Harry Bridges the, book yes yeah yeah about that strike and I was like oh this is so cool I'm reading about it in two places by two different people that's so awesome yeah. and there were um, so many other things about it that I couldn't squeeze in like mm -hmm. IWW was involved but please go on oh no no I mean it was it was really cool and, and the ILWU uh, is a very cool union I would definitely recommend reading uh, solidarity stories as well um, and you know the uh, uh, oh shoot I lost my train of thought we were talking about I don't know but well, <laughs> no yeah you, you go ahead that. Adam yeah I was gonna <laughs> just say I think one of the coolest things about that story was you mentioned how the ILWU actually was organizing workers on the boat rides over yes. to Hawaii wasn't that something <laughs> that was like what a different that approach the toughest thing like that was yeah for for listeners who haven't read it yet like that was. It was really a stroke of genius because um, the bosses were bringing in uh, boatloads of strike breakers from different countries, bringing them in and assuming they would screw up the strike. But the, the stewards and cooks and other workers on the ship were union. So they just organized all the workers in advance. And when they showed up, when all those new folks came off the ship, they were greeted by like a union band and they already had their union cards and they completely foiled the boss's plan and added a whole bunch of new members to the strike. It was like, that's the kind of, you know, innovative uh, wall to literally talk about wall right. to wall, <laughs> like yeah. starboard to port organizing we need. Yeah. I mean, the, so many, I think 
you, you know, the 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 idea or or the response to a whole lot of people of people being brought in as, as strike breakers, which is uh, would just be to, you know, try to not let them in or try to, you know, get them deported or, or not be able to immigrate here or, um, you know, uh, j- just that. The idea of organizing the strike breakers it just never occurred to so many people. Um, it, it is a it's, really I mean, cool story. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, that's another lesson from the past we can we can learn from. You know, there's even I'm trying to remember. I don't have the specific uh, page number, or whatever, in my head. But there's another instance during the mine wars, I think, when um, a bunch of actually, yeah, a bunch of incarcerated folks were brought in to act as strike breakers for this conflict that was going on between coal miners and the coal bosses. And they were all kept in like a stockade to, of course, can't make sure that they, you know, to make sure they can't be free while we're, they're working for people for nothing. But the miners who they showed up and they just set everyone free and they burned down the stockade. So not only did the strike breakers not break the strike, a whole bunch of people got free. And mm-hmm. like things like that are just so cool to read about and like so inspiring to share with people. Cause it's like labor history is really cool and exciting and fun. Mm-hmm. You just have to show people the fun parts. And, you know, and I read a lot of books that are really well-researched and really in depth and really, really valuable, but they're not a ton of fun to read. Right. Unless you're like looking for something specific. I think there's a difference between research books and reading books, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't want to be shady to anybody. Everyone's work is very important who's trying to preserve working class history. But I wanted to make sure my book was something you could pick up on your break mm-hmm. and not feel like you're doing homework. Right. Right. Well, and you bring together you bring so many stories. I mean, it's like three hundred and twenty pages. And if you look at the contents, I mean, it's so many like 13 <laughs> chapters each chapter oh, is a specific on. type of worker and in each chapter for each type of worker you tell you know two to half a dozen to seven or eight different stories about each of those different types of work so it's really pulling together so many different things and you know while we're on the while we're on the topic of of, of maybe marginalized workers or bringing people together you know i think that the um the chapter that you have about the the queer workers was very cool or maybe it was it was in a different it was in a different oh, yeah, there this is this is the thing so i had a whole when i was going through putting together chapters there was like certain categories of workers i wanted to make sure mm-hmm. i had their own chapter and i kind of debated with myself do i want to have a chapter focused on queer workers right. or do i want to just feature a whole bunch of queer characters and make it clear that queer people are people are everywhere in the movement and have been the whole time and i feel i decided that was the best way to go yeah Um, yeah. because that's true but i think the chapter you're you're talking about the movers chapter nine that just happens to have a ton of queer characters Mm -hmm. and i thought that was kind of fun just because i think even in the intro to that chapter i talk about how when people think about transportation it's mostly like the teamsters or whatever it's like well let's talk about flight attendants and marine cooks and stewards Mm -hmm. and trans truck drivers like that's i tried to kind of take these even the most traditionally like masculine white coated ideas of like the manufacturing worker or like Mm -hmm. the factory worker or the miners like i wanted to take those and make sure that those were like the queerest or most feminine or whatever <laughs> chapters because right. like everyone else has been here too. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it, the the marine cooks and stewards and the flight attendants was definitely yeah. a very uh, th- those were really cool and 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 the the trans truck drivers you know that the isolation of being a truck driver being a solace for people who are constantly you know bombarded by society uh, discrimination and you know stuff like that that was that was a really interesting dynamic that I would have never. Never thought of because yeah. you know you think of you think of a truck driver and you think of a of, of a, a big burly teamster or something right, but trans truck drivers are are apparently like a not uncommon phenomenon, and it kind of makes sense. And it's really I have to shout out Anne Belay who wrote a book called Semi Queer that was a huge source for that chapter, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, she interviewed a ton of queer and trans truck drivers and and black and female truck drivers again folks that disrupt that that idea of the mm-hmm. you know the white dude in a with a beer belly mm-hmm. uh, which is also fine not to body shame anybody there's just that right. idea right 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 but um yeah and that's the thing like i'm not clearly i'm not the only person to put this stuff together right like tons of really brilliant authors and historians mm-hmm. have done like very focused studies on these very kind of intersectional um, histories of different types of worker. Anne Belay has done a, a couple books, like just looking at queer workers in specific places. Like there's that one, and there's one about um. She wrote about seal workers uh, in like Indiana. Like mm. she's done really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And like I, I hope that my book is seen as being sort of in conversation with that work and yeah. part of this this history that I think it's maybe a little bit more radical, right? But like this new tradition, or not even that new, this tradition of covering working class stories in a way that's intentionally intersectional and intentionally mm-hmm. makes sure that no one's left out because a lot of people get left out like, right. and have gotten left out. And I wanted to scoop up as many of them as mm-hmm. I could fit and put them in a book that people could find at like Barnes and Noble right. and read and then hopefully go through the bibliography and follow the breadcrumbs and find all the other cool stuff out there. And like, it was re- it was really cool. Intro. Yeah, it, well, it was really cool seeing the characters like that being brought out, but also other characters fighting for them on the basis of their different identities and and the you know the way that they're you know the marine cooks and stewards. Some of the things that they fought for was like you know freedom to be gay and like not you know not be fired and and things and, and yeah. that's and this was happening. When when were when were they when did they win the right to like you know be gay basically be themselves <laughs> yeah 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 it was, I think it was like in the 30s really when that union kind of came into its own in because previously to the 30s in yeah the before 30s, that it was like you had sailors you know fighting for queer rights that's crazy yeah like the the phrase they had like the slogan they had was no queen baiting no red baiting. Uh, no race baiting. So mm-hmm. it was a very black, very mm-hmm. queer, very lefty union. And of course, like that, they didn't last as long as we would have wished they would have because of the red scare, because of all this mm-hmm. anti-lefty, anti-everything sentiment that we that so many people had to deal with. But the fact that they existed, it is really um, uh, Alan Bubbly. Boob- there's there's a great social historian that really preserved that history and interviewed some of those workers and i was able to find like these archives and whatnot but yeah like that's just such a cool story and it just shows that labor has always been radical there have always Mm. been radical lefty diverse people involved in this movement like from the very beginning and it's i mean all the cool stuff that we've won all the progress we've made is thanks to them how do you feel like your the the stories that you wrote about in this book 
and that you read about for this book. How do you think that informs your writing about struggles today? I think that you are are probably the, um, you know, you are the person people think of on a national scale for uh, when, when they think of people that are telling the story of the miners here in Alabama. Um, oh, my boys. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that's something that, like, even though the miners are in a lot of ways very stereotypically union, they have something in common with the queer characters in your book, the immigrant characters in your book, in that they are being ignored by so many different people. Um, yeah, because so, of who they are. Right. Yeah. Because of, so how do, how does, how does the work that you did for, for this book inform how you report today? Yeah, it's, it's funny, too, that you mentioned the minor strike, because that was my one, uh, my fun thing I allowed myself as I was writing the book. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to stay here in my office. I'm going to read my books. I'm going to do my phone calls. I'm not going to move, except when I go to Alabama to see the folks in Brookwood and try and write about them, because that's, I couldn't, I couldn't give up on them, because it was, it became almost a, yeah, a personal mission to make sure people were paying attention. Mm-hmm. But even, and the, the most effective thing I have found when covering that story and any other labor story too, is the is placing the utmost importance on workers' voices and on getting the story directly from the horse's mouth, if you will. Like, love unique communicators, they're wonderful, but you if you want people to care about something that's happening, you have to show them why they should care. You have to humanize the characters. You have to put a face to the problem, a face to the issue. Like, you could tell someone oh, there's a bunch of coal miners on strike in Alabama and, you know, they're having a really rough time and that person might not care very much. But if you show them a video of Greg Pilkerton talking about what he's dealt with on the picket line, about how him and his wife were injured by company goons, like, and just see the look in his eyes when he talks about finding out his wife was hurt. Like, if you have a heart or a soul, you're going to care about what's happening to that man and his coworkers. And that's just the biggest lesson I've learned through writing about labor in general is like put the workers first and do everything you can to show that people are flesh and blood characters and that every worker deserves you know sympathy and solidarity even if you don't like the industry they work in if it's a complicated industry if they have views that are not lining up with your political views like we can talk about that stuff but let's make sure the workers are being taken care of first you know, it's it's really show the importance of empathy, I think, and it's mm. sort of um, putting some of your own political positionings, your own personal opinions, and just kind of put it to the side while we're trying to fight for something that helps everyone. It, it's been interesting, for sure, covering this strike in particular. But, I mean, every labor story kind of has the same parts. Like, it's workers mm-hmm. versus the boss, it's labor versus capital. In some cases, in a lot of cases, it's very much a good versus evil struggle. Wow. And you kind of have to show the the blood and guts of it and the heart of it to get people who might otherwise just click past it to, to pay attention and think, oh, these mm-hmm. people are just like me or just like my aunts and uncles or just like my grandparents. Oh, it sounds right. like they're having a rough time. Like, maybe I should re- look into this. Maybe I should post this. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you gotta grab them by the heartstrings, really. 
Yeah, you you know, you mentioned that sometimes it really is like a good and evil thing, and 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 um, some people, and I don't know where they would get this idea. They've accused me of having like black and white thinking about these issues, um, and no, <laughs> and that I'm too biased or whatever, and and you know, biased. I, <laughs> yes, well, I'm biased. You're on. I'll admit it. Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, there's something that I <laughs> there's something I think that religious folks get right in that there are some people that I think are genuinely motivated by evil and wicked wickedness and 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 i will cop up to believing that in virtually all of these stories that we talk about the bosses are especially in this case in 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 the miners case Mm. i mean it it there is nothing else that explains their behavior other than wickedness and and evil and and like a desire to wield power illegitimately over others like there's just nothing else that explains it i mean even blackrock came out the other week and was talking about like yeah this isn't yeah. like really great for our bottom line you should uh you should <laughs> you know you should yeah, when blackrock this. is saying like yo you guys should chill a little bit like blackrock yeah like the personification of corporate equity evil are like mm, you're being a little rough with those boys down there <laughs> like what more of a sign do, right. does one of the, the owners need to be struck by lightning right to finally get the message <laughs> right yeah Maybe Pat Robertson would come out if that happened and say, like, wow, I think God has sent a sign that it's time for this video. <laughs> Gosh, and it's just, they do this to such a group of folks that are so religious mm-hmm. and so, like, they're just really nice people. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel so much for the, the, the miners and their wives and their families and their community. It's like, it couldn't, it couldn't be happening to a nicer group of people. And like, that's the thing, like this is happening mm-hmm. everywhere in the country all the time. Maybe not a thousand workers, maybe not in a coal mine, but right. there is some, some rich, um, let's see, jerk who is trying <laughs> to, cr- uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm on the radio, I gotta behave, yeah, yeah. gotta keep my Jersey mouth in check. I'm in the South right now. But there's, there's some rich jerk who has all the money he and his descendants and anyone he's ever mm-hmm. looked at in his life could ever need but still wants to have that power and control right. over people yeah. that he sees as less than. And that's what it comes down to. Like people not respecting workers for the labor they do and the services they provide and the value they add, like nothing would work. Nothing would exist without workers doing it. Like any person in a C-suite who thinks that they're a self-made millionaire, billionaire is just a fool. You didn't make anything. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. We're out here preaching now. <laughs> Amen. Amen, sister. Amen. I did come from a very charismatic religious background. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Adam, did you have any other questions or, or did sure. you want to? Yeah. I guess my parting questions would be why should the average Alabamian read this book? And what do you hope they'll take away from it? Mm, There's a lot of cool Alabama history in it, actually. That's one thing that I I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's divine providence. Keep an eye on me. But as I was doing my research, Alabama kept popping up in so many different places and different centuries of just workers taking power back, organizing, unionizing, striking. It's uh, maybe someday I'll write a book all about it. Or maybe one of you guys should write it. In fairness, I'm a carpetbagger. But (laughs) (laughs) I think honestly, anybody who cares about working people and about families and about the rights we have and 
just the history of this country, the history of poor and working folks in this country. Like this book is full of folks like that. It's full of people just like you and your family, whether you're a, a very Christian conservative Republican or a big old lefty, like someone just like you has fought for the people they know and the people they work with and made the world a little bit better. And I hope that people will pick this up and feel inspired and feel empowered and see themselves as part of that long and bloody and complicated and beautiful history and feel proud of themselves. Because, you know, we're, I think the most noble thing you can do is leave the world a little bit better than how it was when you showed up. And this book shows a whole lot of people who did that and offers a little bit of advice on how to do that. Yeah. The book is Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. The author is Kim Kelly. It is available anywhere you buy your books, as well as you can buy it online at Red Emma's, which is a worker-owned uh, coffee shop and bookstore in Baltimore, Maryland, and at Powell's Books, which is an ILWU unionized bookstore. And if you shop through the union's link, a portion of the uh, purchase will go towards their strike fund. Kim, thanks for talk, uh, thanks for talking to us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'll thanks, see y'all soon. All right. All right. All right. Yeah, that was our conversation. Um, mics are unmuted now, right? Yes, they yep. are. So that was our conversation with Kim Kelly. She is the author of Fight Like Hell. I mentioned you can find her book online at Red Emma's and at Powell's Books. Red Emma's is a worker-owned bookstore and coffee shop in Baltimore. Uh, Powell's Books is a unionized bookstore in uh, Washington or Oregon, somewhere up in the Pacific Northwest. And if you purchase Fight Like Hell through the unions, the ILWU Local 5's uh, link, a portion of the proceeds will go to their strike fund. So that is a very cool thing. Two very cool places to get books from. Um, and I, a very, very cool book to order. I yes. can't recommend it enough. It's very easy to read. It is, mm -hmm. uh, as Kim described, she accomplished her goal. It is not uh, a yes. dry, dense uh, history text. And, and as someone who loves that as well, uh, it's a quick read. You'll get a lot out of it. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. book, uh, mm -hmm. beautiful hard copy, uh, hard cover. So the, one of the things that I like about it, and one of the things that we try to do on the show, is that so much, you know, political media, so much history, talk shows, news segments, they're focused on people with power mm -hmm. people that are bosses people that are politicians and i think that regular people even you know even conservative folks i think that regular people say they want more information about the lives of regular people and this is a book about the lives of regular people this is a book about how regular people stood up to the bosses stood up to politicians fought for themselves their sisters and their brothers uh for the right to live for fair wages for better working conditions for the right to be queer on the job and not be fired for the right to love who they want to love and not be fired uh you know for equal rights for everybody desegregating their workplaces all of these these things are fights that regular working people had and this is such a good book it tells so many stories of so many different people that are not emphasized even in labor history uh much less you know um other histories so um 
Great book. Couldn't recommend it enough. We appreciate Kim for taking the time to talk to us. We're going to take a break really quick, and then Adam is going to, on the other side, talk about the labor history curriculum in the state of Alabama. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR, and we will be right back. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. .org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show this is the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison my co-host and fellow agitator is adam keller um we have had a great show we are online on youtube at the valley labor report if you've missed any of the program you can always go back and watch the full show on youtube or you can find clips where um we just we just take you know little isolated segments and throw them up as their own youtube video that way you know if if there's just one thing that's interesting to you maybe not the rest of the show then you can just watch that one thing so subscribe to us on our youtube channel like the stream if you're watching us on youtube and you haven't yet um and we appreciate everybody's time uh, so Adam, everybody knows, is a former history teacher in the Alabama public schools, and so he has a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty good insight as to what is taught in Alabama, uh, you know, with respect to the history curriculum and and with respect to labor history. So Adam, can you talk to us about what? What is taught in Alabama public schools um, as it relates to unions, to labor, working people, things like that? Yeah, I think it was a pretty appropriate, given the interview we just had with Kim Kelly about the untold stories of our labor history, uh, that we take a look at Alabama school systems and what do Alabama students actually uh get taught, what are they exposed to in terms of our history of, of a labor movement here in this state. So if you're a regular listener to this show, then you already know the importance of the labor movement and the history of our state and our country. You know how labor struggles intersected with other struggles against oppression and exploitation. And you know how the labor struggles of the past shape our present and future struggle to fulfill the American promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But do you think the average Alabama student, or adult for that matter, share this knowledge? It will probably not be a surprise to hear that when it comes to teaching about unions and the labor movement, Alabama is failing its young people. And I know that to be true based on my own experiences as a public school student and a public school teacher here in Alabama, as well as my time as a labor and community activist. You know, I know how many times I've encountered graduating seniors who don't even know what a union is. But I wanted to look at the facts. So I took a look back at the Alabama Social Studies course of study and standards. This is what teachers are required to teach in our state. Uh, Any public school in the state, if you're teaching social studies, this is your guiding 
framework. So I'm going to quote from the document here. The 2010 Alabama Course of Study, Social Studies, provides Alabama students and teachers with a curriculum that contains content designed to promote competence in the areas of economics, geography, history, and civics and government. With an emphasis on responsible citizenship, these content areas serve as the four organizational strands for the grades K-12 through social studies program. Content in this document focuses on enabling students to become literate analytical thinkers capable of making informed decisions about the world and its people while also preparing them to participate responsibly in society at local, state, national, and international levels. You know, sounds pretty good, right? But those words ring a little more hollow when you consider the minimal emphasis on unions and the labor movement. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this is a comprehensive analysis here, uh, but I did search the course of study for any mention of words like union and labor. Taking a page from the Zen Education Project, who recently did a very similar study of state standards around the teaching of Reconstruction. Uh, and for anyone who's particularly interested in Reconstruction or uh, teaching, highly recommend you check that out. Uh, spoiler alert, Alabama did not do very well. So when I looked through 140-odd pages, I only found the word union twice with the exception of union being used as a reference to the North or the Soviet Union. But in terms of union as in labor union, I literally only found the word twice. And both of those were in the 12th grade economics, and both of which were additional content under the standards, not in the standards themselves. So it doesn't really get much better when you look for labor in Alabama social studies. Sixth grade modern U.S. history does ask students to, quote, identify workplace reforms, including the eight-hour workday, child labor laws, and workers' comp laws during the progressive era. In ninth grade world history, 1500 to the present, there is one standard that includes, quote, conditions of labor and, quote, the economic theories of capitalism, liberalism, socialism, and Marxism during the Industrial Revolution. And that's it there. Cut to 11th grade modern U.S. history, the last U.S. history class most Alabamians will have to ever take in their life. The very first standard actually addresses it. Uh, the very first standard is on, quote, the transition of the United States from an agrarian society to an industrial nation prior to World War I. And I am pleased to say it does actually explicitly include some labor history, including events like the Pullman Strike, groups like AFL and IWW, and figures like A. Philip Randolph and Eugene Debs. But again, that's, that's it for the year, the course. So given that, it's really easy to see how students could walk away from their American history classes and walk away from high school. And if they actually know anything about labor unions, it's maybe that they were relevant over 100 years ago. And... So just in a couple of minutes, I've basically shared with you the extent of labor history in Alabama's curriculum. Out of over 140 required standards, kindergarten through 12th grade, 140 standards that teachers must teach and that students are expected to learn, maybe five could be called labor history. 
And while other states have actually been debating how to expand and integrate labor history into the curriculum, Alabama appears to be heading into the opposite direction, unfortunately. Uh, with the Alabama State Board of Education and the legislature targeting intellectual freedom in the name of manufactured right-wing outrage over inclusiveness and what they're calling CRT, uh, we can anticipate even less of an emphasis on our rich labor movement history. Speaking of which, Alabama has a long, bloody, important, and inspirational labor history. From our own roles in the 1934 textile strike and the 1920s coal wars, to the teacher strikes in Walker County and Scottsboro, to the use of state force against striking workers such as rubber workers in the 1990s, to the current landscape of campaigns at the Birmingham Starbucks, the Bessemer Amazon Warehouse, and of course the Warrior Met Coal Strike in Brookwood, now considered Alabama's longest strike. Throughout our history, working-class Alabamians have navigated demographic divisions and government opposition to organize in the workplace, build power for themselves, and fight for their dignity. Now, that's what I call active, responsible citizenship. And, I mean, it is – I. it's so bad. It is such a disservice to – the students of Alabama, that really? they don't know, um, that they know so little about unions and what they do. Because even the, you know, there is some good stuff. I remember learning about Eugene Debs um, in, but even that was kind of in the context of his role as a perennial presidential candidate, um, you know, as opposed to the significance of the labor work that he did. And 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 even there, it seemed like the emphasis when you learned about labor history was always on, it seemed to me, the great man kind of stuff. You know, you're, oh, you're thinking about this one person, you're thinking about Eugene Debs, as opposed to um, all of the workers that followed him or led him in in some instances the Pullman strike he was actually opposed to which is funny because he is you know he's kind of conceived of as a leader of the Pullman strike but he he went when you know the the workers and and everybody democratically said we're going to go on strike he was like okay I think this is a bad idea but I'm you know he put his put his whole heart into it um but you know the 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 structure of like why is it actually that that unions are have been able to win things um you know the the structure of collective bargaining logistically mechanically how do unions work you know the fact that people can come out of i mean it's the same thing as allowing students to come out of high school without knowing how to, how taxes work or right. how to write a check or how to manage their finances or things like this. You know, these, these are things that are um, materially practicable, right? They're, they're things that, that people need and have need to know as they navigate through the world like it's important that you know how to bargain you know when you're uh, uh when you're um you know going to a dealership and you don't just buy the first thing you know you don't pay the sticker price pi- uh, price for a car um and it's important to know that uh you can get more when you collectively bargain and right. i don't know it's just it's very frustrating that they don't even you know it's not even that 
necessarily that they're told the wrong thing about unions, which is that, you know, they're they're bad which, for workers. I mean, happens, which well, that ha- but it, happens. at least it's not in the standards, but right. they don't know that they don't they don't learn anything mechanically, logistically about how they work. And it's just it, it's very it's a disservice to um, it, it's a disservice to folks. It um, is. I mean, especially when you remember that the majority of the state is working class. The majority mm-hmm. of the students of the state are of working course. class. They are going to be workers. Uh, so it, it is disappointing that they have such little exposure to their history as workers, as mm-hmm. members of the working class. Uh, and of course, we're focusing on history here, you know, to tie in with Kim's book. But, you know, on, on a related note, it's disappointing to see how few students are exposed to trade union apprenticeship programs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as an option after high school. There's such an emphasis on college and career readiness. Right. Um, you know, every student has to fill out the uh, FAFSA form now to graduate. They have to fill out that paperwork for college acceptance. Uh, they are exposed to military recruiters on a very frequent basis. But it's pretty infrequent that you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids actually get to be exposed to apprenticeship programs Mm -hmm. like the ones we've discussed on this show. Opportunities that really could change their life and the trajectory of their family. That will give them an income and and benefits on par with a four-year college degree. Absolutely. um, Which is not what you're going to get from non-union apprenticeships. You're going to get... Reaching people that are not going to go to college and and where college is not necessarily the right fit. People who, you know, prefer to work with their hands or whatever the Mm -hmm. the situation may be. So we really are doing a disservice to Alabama students. Well, in a lot of ways, but uh, certainly, certainly (laughs) in this respect. Uh, And I, you know, I just wanted to bring that up. And, uh, you know, I mentioned a few instances of important labor history in this state and something that we want to do more of on this show is, is go into, Uh, detail about some of those and share some of these stories about uh, the struggles of our predecessors here in Alabama to fight for a better state and a better country. So stay tuned on that. If you have any uh, particular stories that you're interested in, maybe you were in a strike at some point or you had parents, grandparents who were involved in different labor struggles here in Alabama, y'all send them our way. Uh, mm-hmm. Would love the inspiration, would love the, the information to in- include in our segments. So yeah, uh, labor history, it's important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, as we're wrapping here on the radio, let's do a couple of plugs. The early bird registration deadline for the Labor Notes conference has passed, um, but you can still go. You should still go. You should still go. Adam and I are both going. I am going to be a pa- on a panel about labor media, and I'm going to be moderating a panel about organizing the South. Oh, wow. Um, I, Look at I you. think I think uh, both of those I've been asked I've been asked about my willingness to do both of those panels and I've said yeah sure well that's what cool yeah so I'm um, really looking forward to it um, it's gonna be a lot of fun of over 4,000 people have already registered um, so it's, it's gonna that's be a awesome. lot of fun uh, 
Kim has said it's going to be labor prom, so um, I imagine there will be <laughs> lots of uh, lots of good union activists, and I imagine lots of alcohol as well. So, um, going to be a good time. Going to be a good time. Um, Tuesday, May seventeenth at twelve p.m., the Alabama Arise learn how to protect Medicaid coverage for thousands of Alabamians. That is a um, that's a uh, that's a thing that they're doing, like an online seminar, right? Yes, yeah. It's, it's through Zoom, uh, so you can check your email or go to Alabama Rises website, social media, and you can find that. Um, so their their Zoom meetings, their webinars are always very informative. Uh, so mm-hmm. highly recommend. Very. Next Saturday, May twenty first at one p.m. Right after the show, you'll be able to go right after you finish listening to the program. Uh, there is a rally in Huntsville. Um, bands off our bodies. Fight for human rights rally at Big Spring Park. Uh, as always, you can leave us a voicemail at eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. That is eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. About anything. About anything. It can be. Uh, a comment on the show. It can be a, an organizing win. It can be a bad boss story. It can be a topic suggestion. Anything like that. You can buy our hat or give us money on our website, tvlr.fm. Uh, we are going to keep going. So for the radio listeners, you know, we have an hour and a half on the radio, but we keep going for like an hour to an hour and a half online only. And, um, and, and we, we take calls in the second half of the show as well. We're allowed um, to cuss because it's the internet. We're allowed to cuss because we're not being censored by the FCC. Big government. Big government. So it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more raucous. Um, and today we are talking to unionizing baristas at a Birmingham, Alabama Starbucks. Uh, That's so very cool. Really looking forward to talking to them. And of course, as always, the phone line is going to stay open. Uh, again, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. That's going to be it for us on the radio today, folks. Find us online on YouTube, on Facebook at the Valley Labor Report, and we will see you next week.